Hello everyone, and welcome back to Fear. In tonight's episode, we're going to go ahead and push on to The Man in My Basement Takes One Step Closer Every Week, Part 12 and 13, and then we'll be finally caught up on wherever this narrator is taking the story. I haven't read these stories yet, so I'm pretty excited to see where this is going to take us. And so, without further ado, let's just get straight into the story. The Man in My Basement Takes One Step Closer Every Week, Part 12, by Polterkites. I recommend measuring the distance from him to the furthest corner of the house. Calculate how long it will take him to reach you. Set up your bedroom as far away as possible. Once established, do not move your bed. You must sleep there from now on. The rhythmic beep of the heart monitor kept me from falling asleep. All the while, I could hear Paul mulling about doing God knows what at four in the morning. This went on for about an hour until finally silence. Silence and early morning birds chirping awake outside. It was still dark out, but the sun was rising. Another ten minutes went by until I decided it was safe to leave. Climbing out from underneath the bed, I pushed up to standing. Relief poured through my sore, cramped body. I looked back. The man in the bed was asleep, eyes closed. Of course, it's possible it wasn't Paul, but the resemblance, even through the gruesome scars, was striking. Then the fact that one version of Paul supposedly burned to death. At this point, who else would it be? I needed a photo, just in case. I pulled up my phone and the battery was dead. Of course. Tucking my phone away, I turned back and staggered across the room, placing my ear against the door. I listened. The low hum of the fridge. The occasional drip of a leaky faucet. Okay. I pushed open the door and peered out. Somehow, the hallway was darker than before. Empty as far as I could see. I crept out and pulled the door shut behind me, shimmying against the wall. I made my way towards the entrance, almost free, almost home. Pushing off the wall, I stumbled into the foyer and thrumped into the front door. A reverberating thud echoed through the house. Fuck. Dread hung in the air as I braced for a response, but nothing came. Only more silence. Relieved, I reached, turned the knob and... Fucking locked? On the outside? I pulled the switchblade out from my back pocket and stuck it into the frame. Sliding forward, I... Behind me, down the hallway, a door clicked open. I looked back over my shoulder. It was the door to the room of Paul's burnt victim doppelganger. Fuck this. I turned back and... Brandon? A voice from my left. I snapped a look. Only the darkened living room. Struggling to pull the knife out from the front door, I squinted in the shadows. In the far corner, by the draped shut window... A silhouette seated on a couch. Are you okay? The familiar voice from the darkness echoed. For a moment, also almost sounding like my father. Someone rose to standing and stepped into a beam of pale moonlight. It was Paul. Cold blue eyes filled with confused disappointment. His eyes glanced through the wedge knife gripped in my hand, then back to me. Mitch called, said Paul, trying to stay calm, acting like nothing bad had happened, even though it clearly was. He's worried about you, said Paul. Or whoever the fuck it was, it took a careful step forward. I flinched, pulled, and yanked the knife out from the doorframe. Paul gently raised a hand. We're okay, he said, stepping back. No need for that. Clear his throat. Full disclosure, I've got a nine mil sitting on the table there. He glanced down to his left. A black finished handgun sat on top of a stack of books. But there's no reason for any of that, right? He said, stepping back and nodding slightly as if the answer to his own question... I lowered the knife, but I didn't put it away. 
Maybe seeing a literal fetus monster crawl out of Mitch's mouth gave me a few trust issues. Mitch said you were really distressed last night. Said you broke down his door, ran away in a panic. I shook my head, painfully aware of how crazy I must have looked. It's okay, Brandon. We're not pressing charges or anything like that. We're worried about you. Have you been sleeping? I chuckled bitterly, turned back towards the door and stuck the knife back into the doorframe. I was done playing this stupid game. In my peripherals, Paul stepped over to the table, crouched down, picked up the gun, and tucked it into the back of his waist loop. Brandon, said Paul, again sounding oddly similar to my father, the way my dad sounded knocking on my bedroom door after Zach died. You're letting this get to you. I know what it's like, trust me. I know better than most. I turned to look at him again. Why is your door locked from the outside? Paul shook his head. It's not. I grabbed the handle and turned it to show. The door popped open and the wedge knife clattered to the floor. I blinked confusion, shrugged, grabbed the door frame in. I'm not letting you go, said Paul. It sounded more like pleading than a threat. I stopped, looked back towards him. You gonna shoot me? We're gonna wait here till help comes. Help as in cops? They're gonna bring you to the hospital, get you some help. A psych ward? They're not like the movies, trust me. I've been in more than a few. I scoffed a growing sense of bitter spite swelling up in my throat. All the confusion, all the questions, all the vagueness boiled into a twisting mass of rage. Who's in the fucking room? Paul glanced down the hallway. An old friend. I gripped my teeth. An old friend burnt to shit that just happens to look exactly like you? He was injured in the war. I'm his caretaker. I shook my head in disbelief. Paul had an answer for everything. You expect me to buy that? It's using you. I can see it in your eyes. Do you know it? Or do you think you're still you? Then why am I trying to help you? I opened the answer but stopped short, as if the insanity of my own thoughts was too strange to even speak aloud. But I knew he was lying. I fucking knew it. Somehow, the version of Paula burnt alive in the car wreck was also the one in the room down the hallway. I didn't know how, I didn't know why, but I knew it was true. Look, Brandon, nothing I say right now is going to convince you of anything, and that's okay. But I need you to understand, this thing is fucking with you right now. It's all in my head, right? No, some of it's real, it has to be, I know. There's things that happened with me that I can't explain. That doesn't matter anymore. I put that aside and pretend it wasn't real. Good for you, I said, squatting down and picking the knife back up. I turned back to, I turned back for the door and Paul drew his gun. He didn't aim at me, but he looked ready to fire. You're not gonna shoot me. You're not gonna get far with that leg. He had a point there. Brandon, Paul continued. You broke and entered with a deadly weapon. But I'm on your side even here. Even Mitch is on your side. I huffed, stepped back from the door and pulled it shut. Paul relaxed and tucked away the pistol. A long stretch of silence. I sighed. Do you actually believe you're in control right now? What? It's using you. I can see it in your eyes. Do you know it? Or do you think you're still you? Paul, at a loss for words, smiled sadly turned around, stepped back from the couch, and I lurched forward, pushed open the front door in one smooth motion, scrambled onto the front lawn. Red and blue lights swiped over the street ahead. I pushed up to my feet, staggering uselessly across the lawn. Brandon! Paul called out, his voice filled with protective concern. A cop cruiser skid to a stop in the street in front of me. Out from the passenger seat, a young cop whipped out, took cover behind the door, and drew his weapon. Get on the ground! He screamed, gun pointed directly at me. I just stood there, knife in hand, in shock, staring down the barrel of a handgun. Drop the weapon! I looked back over my shoulder at Paul. 
His face was filled with fear. Fear for my safety. I knew. I could see it in his eyes. Something slammed into me from the side. A burly cop tackled me into the dirt. The knife sailed from my hand and flew through the air. My head pushed into wet soil and on grass. I was pinned down. Sudden realization flooded through me. This meant I would be dragged away to a psych ward, forced to do their tests, forced to take medication, sleeping away from home, breaking the cardinal rule again and again, the intruder gaining more and more influence with every passing night. A sense of overwhelming dread swarmed through me. With a burst of surprising strength, I kicked and swiped and flailed, somehow shoving the heavy-set cop off me. I scrambled, half crawling, half running, a useless attempt. The second cop hauled off the street towards me and sidewalled me back into the ground. Both of them pinned me down now. Dead grass and clumps of dirt filled my mouth, but I didn't give up. I kept fighting. This was life or death. I needed to escape. I kept pushing, struggling. Be careful with him, Paul's muffled voice cried out. A heavy blow cracked against the back of my head. Darkness. I woke in the head of something not human, but not the intruder either. An animal. A strange and bizarre sensory experience to say the least. Four legs. A perspective of the world nearly impossible to explain. Was it a mountain lion? Was it a bear? I didn't know. But I was in a forest, staring down a straight, winding hiking trail. Evenly sunlight... Evening sunlight cut down through the trees above, speckling the path with pockets of swaying light. Then I saw myself ahead on the path. I was dressed for hiking, looking slightly older now, leg fully healed, oblivious of the creature in front of me. This version of me suddenly froze, staring directly towards me now, his eyes filled with terror. Darkness. I woke in a room with greenish walls, cold fluorescent light cast over me. My arm was handcuffed to a bed railing. I knew exactly where I was. Emergency room psych ward. Part 13 He will begin in the furthest corner of your basement. Paul was right about one thing. Psych wards aren't like the movies. At least this one wasn't. If anything, it felt more like a nursing home. Assisted living with cameras and security guards to boot. No electroshock therapy. No drawn-out talks with stoic shrinks. No evil head nurse. The movie's got one thing right, though. The isolation. Especially the first few days. I was in hysterics, chained to a bed, screaming about the man in the basement. Screaming about how sleeping away from home would only make him stronger. Every night I spent away, ceded more of my strength to him. Of course, I knew this behavior didn't exactly help my case for appearing sane. But when you're staring down the barrel of a gun, none of that really matters. Regardless, I calmed myself down after a few days. A steady cocktail of Seroquel and Benzos might have helped too. Now, I had only one goal. Appear sane enough to be discharged. Get back home and hopefully salvage this disastrous transgression. Maybe the intruder would give me some leeway since me being here was involuntary. Wishful thinking. I guess there's one other thing the movie's got right. The more you try to appear sane, the more insane you appear. It's not easy pretending things are normal when you believe in ever more powerful hive mind, tulpa, whatever the fuck is trying to absorb you into itself. But I put up a decent show. To be honest, getting stuck in a psych ward is the last place I expect to be. Before this, it seemed like everything was leading up to some huge and terrible revelation. Like I'd finally get the answers to all my questions. But now I wasn't stuck in a borderline nursing home, putting together cat puzzles and playing Uno. Not exactly the finale I had in mind. 
the anticlimax of all was suspect, to say the least. Getting forced into a psych ward changed my view on a lot of things. There was one guy in there, he had OCD, so bad he needed seven cups of water on his bedside table at all times. Each cup needed to be slightly fuller than the last. But he also needed to drink from the third, fourth, and seventh cup every 14 minutes. If he broke the ritual, he was convinced a man out of paper would climb in through the vents and cut him in half. Shit like that might have seemed funny to me before, in a morbid kind of way. But after seeing it firsthand, after living through it myself, let's just say I don't look at homeless people rambling to themselves in the streets the same way I did before. It's easy to make fun of things that make you uncomfortable. It's not easy when you're the one going through hell. Paul came to visit me too. Or at least he tried. I didn't sign up the first few times. As far as I was concerned, Paul wasn't Paul. The real Paul was trapped back in his house, barely alive, strapped to a hospital bed, and burnt up almost beyond recognition. Mitch even showed up once too, but I refused him as well. Mitch wasn't Mitch either. Worst of all, I don't think either of them were even aware of it. I believed that they believed they were actually themselves. But Paul kept trying, showing up every other day, he even covered all my hospital bills out of his own pocket. Out of curiosity more than anything else, I finally gave in. Paul and I sat down in the common area. It felt like a low-income high school lunchroom. Round tables covered in half-finished puzzles. An older woman stood by the window. Rosa was her name. Every ten minutes or so, Rosa would call out to the nurse. When the nurse showed up, she'd ask them for the time. They'd tell her the time, and she'd thank them. Rinse and repeat for the last three hours straight. After a while, you even start to tune out stuff like that. Finally, the doors pushed open, and in walked Paul. Our eyes met. He smiled softly, strode across the room, pulled out a rickety chair, and sat down across from me. How you been? I shrugged. Better. He nodded and pulled a brown envelope out of his jacket. He placed it flat down on the table and slid it towards me. That's not going to answer everything, but it might help some. Skeptical, I reached into the envelope and pulled out a stack of documents. Papers, photos, ID cards... What's this? Everything I could find on my front of the room. Full warning. Some of it's a little graphic. I scanned the first paper. Hospital records. Detail of a man named Lawrence Weiser, laying on a gurney in the Vietnam jungle with full-body chemical burns. I flipped to the next page. Military legal papers, giving Paul the right to shelter and look after Lawrence Weiser. Take care of complications sustained due to long-term effects of a wartime injury. I flipped to the next page. A photo of Paul, much younger was paper clipped at his corner, his arm wrapped around another man's shoulder, about the same age. Both of them looked so much alike. They could have been brothers. I kept flipping. More documents. More photos. IDs. Birth certificates. If they were fake, Paul would have spent a lot of time and money making them. I turned the page. More photos of Paul. He was setting up a hospital bed in his house spare bedroom. Military personnel helping out. I put the papers down and looked at him. And, I said, not buying it. Paul scratched his neck. I know it barely answers anything, but at least it clears up one thing. I set the documents on top of the envelope and slid it back across to Paul. I drove to Mitch's apartment. Forty minutes out of town. Saw a fucking fetus monster climb out of his mouth. Then I ran down the hallway and ended up in the basement. Fuck, I'm pretty sure your car is still parked out of Mitch's. You saying it's in my head? Paul nodded understandingly. Looking back over his shoulder, making sure nobody was in earshot. It's not in your head, he said, turning back to face me. It's only partially in your head. This thing's got a foot in the door between reality and nothing. If you let it, it'll push the door all the way open and never go back. I scoffed. Why all the run-arounds? 
Why the stupid fucking rules? Paul leaned back in his chair. Mitch and I had different ideas on how to fix it. I figured accepting it there and living life regardless is the best route. Mitch thinks that that's what it wants you to do. Why'd you say I could pass it off then? Paul looked at me, genuinely confused. In the park? I continued. He said I could build a bunker door, pass it off to somebody else's place. In the park? I looked at him in disbelief. Did you forget? I, I honestly don't know what you're talking about, he said. He seemed sincere, but I've been fooled more than enough by now. In the park, you told me a long, drawn-out fucking story about how you fell in between these boulders. I saw a man down between the rocks. Told me the intruder dug a tunnel between the houses. A tunnel? You're serious? Look, Brandon, I don't know who you talked to, but it wasn't me. But that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is you focus on moving past all this. Focus on getting better. The stronger you are, the healthier your mind is, the less power this thing has over you. Like I said before, once I stopped drinking and started caring for people close to me, all the crazy shit started going away. Things still happen, don't get me wrong, but I can deal with it now. You learn to cope. How do I know you're even you? You don't shit, I mean, but that doesn't matter either. I'm here. I exist. You exist. You work with what you don't. How long have you been away from home now? Two, three weeks? Has anything happened? Has the intruder shown up here? Have you died? I didn't answer, but I caught the point. This doesn't make any sense, I said, leaning forward, resting my arms on the table. That's the point. This thing preys on confusion, addiction, fear, repression, trauma. The more fucked up you are, the better time it has. I thought about it. Has the doctor helped, Paul continued? The meds? I gave a reluctant nod. As much as I hated to admit it, things didn't feel as crazy as they used to. I felt calmer, more stable. But like I said before, this was all too easy. Uncomfortably anticlimactic. But I wasn't giving up that easily. The night before I went to the house, I swerved, almost hit a bear. I smashed into a roadside post and cracked my head on the driver's side window. I saw things, experienced things. I saw you driving, looking through your eyes. Paul nodded as if expecting the point to be raised. I'm not going to say it wasn't real. Years back, I had a similar thing. Flipping backwards and forwards through time, in and out of people's heads, even the intruder itself's head. Little snippets of moments, crumbs of conspiracy, just enough to create a narrative in your head that you that may or may not be real, enough to keep obsessed, enough to, I saw you, driving shit-faced, you swerved into somebody on a green bike, hit run, that never happened? Paul looked at me with deadly serious eyes, I'd kill myself before covering up something like that, he said, with brutal conviction, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but it didn't happen in this world, and it didn't happen to me. Whatever that's worth. Sure, I said, still not fully satisfied. Lingering silence hung in the air. Nurse? Rosa by the window called out again. The staff was ignoring her now. Nurse? Paul looked around, expecting someone to help. She just keeps asking the time, I said. Paul pulled up his sleeve and checked the time of his watch. 5.58 in the afternoon, he said, smiling warmly towards her. Rosa looked at Paul like he was an angel sent from above. Thank you. Paul nodded and turned back to me. More silence. I clenched my throat. You and Mitch talking again? I asked, genuinely curious. Paul shook his head no. He was just worried about you is all. Still thinks you're possessed? Something like that. Paul rubbed his jaw. I mean, it's not just that though. I was a shitty father too. That's why his sister doesn't talk to me. I nodded. You remind me of my old man sometimes. Shit father too, huh? I almost laughed. Nah, he was alright. Where is he now? Dead. 
Ah, oh, sorry. It's okay. What got him? Lung cancer. Same thing got my dad in the liver, though. A strange calm came over me. Something I haven't felt since before this nightmare began. A feeling that maybe despite all its misery, life was worth sticking around for. At least a little while longer. If for nothing else, just to see what happens. We talked about Howie, too. Paul said Howie always struck him as weird. Even before the intruder. Maybe he was a servant of the intruder. Maybe he was an unwitting vessel, controlled by the intruder, to spy on the new recruits. Maybe he was just a weird guy who really liked the color green and crossword puzzles. We decided some things were better left alone. A bell rang out from the PA system. Dinner will now be served in the cafeteria. Please line up on the marks, maintaining a six-foot distance from one another. Paul hit the table gently with his fist. Well, I'll stop bucking now. I forced a smile. Paul stood up. I'm not asking you to trust me blindly, but if you got the patience, I'd love to swing by and visit every so often. Don't mu got much else going on anyways. Sure, I said, still, still skeptical. Even though I didn't trust Paul, or anyone for that matter, I had to admit his presence made me feel a little less crazy, a little less alone. Besides, any visitor, even a potential vessel of the intruder, was preferable to no visitors at all. Take it easy, kid, said Paul. He strode back for the exit and pushed through the doors. Paul stopped by every single day for the next two weeks. He played. We played cards, talked about hockey, politics. Sometimes we talked about the intruder, too. But less and less every day. Paul eventually brought me somewhat around, convinced me to work with the doctors. What have you got to lose, anyways? A fair point. Paul told me to tell the doctors what they needed to hear. Tell them I acknowledged it was all in my head, even if we both knew that it wasn't entirely true. Say what I needed to say to get out. But don't rush things. Only leave when it feels ready to. Reality is a spectrum. Things in the realm of thought and emotion don't exist or not exist in a binary state. Sometimes false thoughts lead to real actions. Terrible and beautiful. Just look at religion. I'm not a believer myself. It's pretty staggering the simultaneous beauty and horror created by mythic ideologies. True or not, sometimes it feels like belief itself has more effect on the real world than anything else. I don't know. Maybe the intruder worked in a similar way. Molding itself out of belief. Obsession. Trauma. Forcing itself out of the abstract into the concrete. Like a virus in the mind. Who knows? I was there the day before my discharge. The doctors had determined I was stable enough to return to public life. I still felt like shit, but now in a normal constant haze of vague depression and anxiety kind of way as opposed to supernatural entity is trying to kill me kind of way. Paul and I played crib in the common area. Best out of three, one. As usual, stretching out his arms, Paul checked the time. Well, I should head out, he said, partially yawning. I'll swing by tomorrow. Give you a ride home. Sure. Thanks, Paul. No worries, kid. Paul drove me home the next day. We pulled in my driveway, and sure enough, there sat my car, inexplicably back in its spot, no longer in front of Mitch's apartment. I opened my mouth to ask about it, but stopped myself short. Better leave well enough. So, what's next for Brandon, said Paul, adjusting the rearview mirror as he spoke. I shrugged. Probably going to move upstate, to be honest. Yeah? I don't blame you. I haven't checked my email in a while, but I'm pretty sure I'm jobless by now. That kind of just fell off the map. Paul chuckled. Fair enough. Is that a bad thing, though? I mean, not really. It wasn't really my favorite job anyway. What are you going to do now? I don't know. I'll go back to school. Maybe I'll start writing again. You write? You used to. And you enjoyed that? Yeah. Why'd you stop? No money. Well, if you move, sell the place. 
I might give you a bit of cushion, huh? Sure. I'm not saying what you should do, Brandon, but if you like writing, then at least try for it. If you like something else, shoot for that. It's better than not trying. Yeah, maybe, I said mulling it over, looking back. This conversation, like many others, was a little strange, but I didn't think much of it at the time. Anyways, I'll get out of your hair now, said Paul. Silence. I reached the door and stopped. Thanks, Paul. I stood looking back at him. It's hard to know what to say when someone probably saved your life. You owe me one, he said, cracking a smile. I smiled back, turned away, and unlatched the door. I stepped out, went to close it in. Oh, one other thing, said Paul. I froze, pulled the door back open, hunched down to meet his eyes. I know you're planning to move away anyways, but he shifted in his seat slightly. It's probably better we keep minimal contact from here on out. Same goes for Mitch. I'm not sure why, but this thing seems to feed off us being around each other. I nodded, stepped away, and pushed the door shut and turned back to my house. Paul pulled in the reverse, backed across the street, and pulled into his garage. To this day, I don't know if that was even Paul, the intruder, or something in between. All I know is he helped me get back on my feet, so I'm grateful for that. I rifled for my keys and opened the door. The smell of cooking hit me. Chicken soup, gravy, and mashed potatoes. Howie humming to himself. I pulled the door shut behind me and was greeted with a bright green, brand new basement door. You like it? Howie's voice shot down the hallway. I turned. His bald head peeked out from the kitchen. Yeah, Howie, it's great. I lied. Howie smiled brightly and stepped out of the hallway. Work's picking up again, so it's from my own pocket. The least I can do if you let me stay here. Thanks, Howie. How you been? Mitch's dad sort of filled me in a little, and he's apparently not dead. Not sure why I thought that. This kid told me otherwise. Some people are so weird, huh? Crazy's catching, I said. Huh? Nothing. Oh, I got something. Howie slipped back into the kitchen and reappeared on the other side. This time with a crossword book in hand. Nine words. Third letter T, last letter M. A naturally occurring yellowish, blackish liquid found in geological formations below the Earth's surface. I furrowed my brow. The word was on the tip of my tongue, but I couldn't quite place it. Howie looked at me, eyes filled with anticipation. I shrugged again. Beats me. His eyes filled with disappointment. I'll let you know if it comes to me. Sure, sure. No problem. Howie slumped back in the kitchen and placed the booklet. He looked like he just got told his dog died or something. I moved out the next week. Howie offered to stay, pay rent with his newfound income. I agreed. I never did find out exactly what happened to him for him to leave his old place, but he never brought it up, so I didn't ask. I moved upstate, rented a small studio apartment in Mountain Town. Still can't sleep in places with basements, but you can't really blame me on that one. Got back into writing hard, too. Started taking online courses, watching YouTube tutorials, stuff like that. Got my craft to a place where I'm not entirely embarrassed to share it. Weirdly, all these events actually inspired me to start writing again. Of course, all the loose ends, all the unanswered questions still bothered me. Something just felt too convenient about the last few weeks, like I'd gotten out of the woods too easy, like the hands of an invisible and benevolent god stepped in and waved away all my problems. Sometimes I wondered if the intruder was still using me, working towards some unknown and terrifying endgame. Vague anxiety once again lingered beneath everything, like a constant, rising, shepherd tone. Sometimes barely audible, sometimes unbearably loud. I did my best to put it out of my mind, to focus on other things, not pushing it away, just being aware that it's there and gently choosing to focus elsewhere. I'm learning to live with it, 
learning to accept the unknowable. I'll admit one thing though, coat racks still freaked me the fuck out. Despite all my progress, there was something else I couldn't shake. One question that kept me up nights. What happened to Zach? Was it really what the police said? Just some long-haul semi-truck driver in the night? A terrible accident? What about the visions of Paul, drunk driving, hitting somebody on a green bike? What about the intruder's mimicry murder of Zach, pleading and apologizing? What about the, I stopped myself from spiraling? These questions stuck in the back of my head like splinters of wood stuck between fingers. But even here, I'm learning to live with it. About six weeks ago, I decided to look up Zach's mother. Not to dig for answers or anything like that, just to call her and see how she's doing. See if she was still even alive. It took a bit of work, but I found her. She lived in a care home down in Georgia. I called her on a Wednesday night. Hello, she said, her voice sounding almost... <clears throat> Hello, she said, her voice sounding almost how I remembered, despite all the years between. Mrs. Serrano? Speaking. Hi, uh, I'm not sure if you remember me or not, but this is Brandon Miller. Brandon? Her voice filled with recognition. Yeah, that's me. Oh, it's so nice to hear from you. How have you been? It's been so long. I'm doing all right. We made a small talk for a while. Talked about the town I grew up in. We talked about the pandemic, the craziness of the upcoming election, and the conversation took an unexpected turn. How's your father doing? She asked. Oh, he passed away quite a few years ago now. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Yeah, I've mostly done the same with Zach, but it still hurts. That never goes away but you'll learn to live with it. I didn't say anything. I was lost for words. Silence hung in the air until, you know Zach always had trouble making friends before you. I didn't know that. Zach always struck me as effortlessly charismatic. He was a bit of an odd duck in a good way before he moved away. None of the other kids ever really clicked with him, but you, inseparable. Huh, yeah, I was the same way. How's that? Not good at making friends. Mmm. More silence. I remember his passing hit you really hard, she said. You didn't speak for months. Your father was worried about you. Yeah, I'm doing better now, thankfully. That's good to hear. I'm sure the closure helped. Closure? What? What closure? You didn't hear? Hear what? A driver. Long-haul teamster came forward a couple years back. All those years back. He was sleep-deprived, running across state shipment when she trailed off and the tragedy spoke in the silence. She took a breath and continued. He grew overwhelmed with guilt, came forward two years back to confess. I met with him too. A kind soul, really. A sensitive soul. Wrong person. Wrong place. A terrible mistake. Where is he now? He took his own life a few months back. Poor soul. Amber found him in the basement corner. The words basement corner hit me like a concrete wall. Was this connected to the intruder? Was this connected to Paul? Nightmarish thoughts and incomprehensible images raced through my mind. The image of a naked body, pale and decomposing, slumped into a basement corner, a plastic bag wrapped around its head. You there? said Mrs. Serrano. I stopped myself, took a deep breath, set it aside. Don't worry about it. It's coincidence. I hope his family is okay, I said. Me as well. Threads of conspiracy dangled in front of me like fishing lures. This had to be connected to intruders somehow. It had to be connected to the rules. What's his name? I asked, almost involuntary. Hmm? The driver. Oh, uh, Mason Parker, I believe. Huh? I didn't recognize it. Awkward silence. Well, it's been lovely hearing from you, Brandon, but game night is about to start and I can't be late. Of course. You as well, Mrs. Rano. 
Take care of yourself. Call anytime, okay? Okay. She entered the call. I sat at my work desk. The glow of car lights beamed in through the window and swiped across the darkening walls. Raindrop shadows stretched across the room and returned into darkness. I took another deep breath, exhaled, doing my best to stay grounded, using a trick I learned in the psych ward. Three, 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 three. Name three things you can see. Bookshelf. White wall. Brown desk. Name three things you can hear. Rain against the window. Tires against the road outside. Neighbor's footsteps up above. Name three things you can feel. The back of my legs against the seat. The warmth of the heater against my shins. The brush of my shirt as I breathe in and out. Name three things you can smell. Coffee. Gasoline. Burnt hair. Overwhelming terror pushed up from the floor. Into my toes. Through my legs. My spine. Into my head. A sickening upward swell of chemical dread. A feeling that something truly heinous... Something evil, yet emotionless, beyond human understanding was standing right behind me. I imagined arms, impossibly long, stretching from the shadows across the room. Unnaturally large hands, fingers with extra joints reaching from the scruff of my neck, eager to pull me down to the floor, down to the ground, down to the dirt, beneath the surface of reality itself, trapping me below an invisible barrier, suffocating me underwater with impenetrable surface tension, forcing me to watch. Gasping for air as the world above me moved on without me. The world above acted as if I never existed to begin with. Eternal suffering. Eternal isolation. Eternal damnation. I spun around, expecting to see something incomprehensible. But there was nothing. No intruder. No coat rack. No man held together with nails and wire. Just an empty studio apartment. The orange glow of more headlights wiped across. Slow and yawning light crawled over the kitchen. Over the front door. Over me. Like the beams of deep water submarines scanning the ocean floor. Everything returned to moonlight darkness. Across the window drapes, a faint, greenish and flickering glow from a neon bar sign across the street. I sniffed the air. The smell of gasoline and burnt hair was gone. Maybe it was never there to begin with. I took another deep breath and exhaled. It's all in my head. Or, at the very least, it's mostly in my head. But still, the words only rang partially true. If I had learned anything over the past few months, it was this. Nothing good comes, at least not this easy. As much as I tried to repress it, as much as I tried to ignore it, I knew something was missing. There was some piece of the puzzle that may or may not ever be found. I took a deep breath, exhaled. I turned back to my desk, popped open my laptop, and started writing. Ooh. And it says one more update's on the way at the very bottom of this one. So I'm assuming we're going to get one last update. We'll get a part 14 and then we'll be able to close this one out. So I really like the way this one went. I know we didn't have the crazy ending that I thought it would be. Some crazy, I don't know. I don't really know what I thought the ending was going to be. If he was going to get turned into one of the intruder's minions or if he is one of the intruder's minions. I don't know. Maybe he's completely seeing all this stuff. Maybe he's on that bed. I don't know. But, yeah. <laughs> this one's been kind of crazy. And I'm looking forward to finding more series. And actually, we might be able to find some more from this uh, Poltercast guy who wrote all these stories. So, as always, I really appreciate you listening to the story. 
If you would like to submit some of your own stories, you can send them into podcastfear at gmail.com. That's podcastfear at gmail.com. And I will go ahead and I will uh, showcase that story in one of the upcoming stories. If you also enjoy the episode, please do me a huge favor and share it with anybody, anybody you want. I'm sure your grandma would love it. And as always, guys, always face your fears. <laughs>